Welcome once again to Political as Heck, a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Astle, joined by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler. What's going on, Todd? Hey, not too much, Corey. We're very excited because we have uh, another guest joining us today, uh, Sam Benson, staff writer for the Deseret News. He covers uh, politics and culture. So welcome, Sam. Corey, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Why don't you tell us a little about yourself? I'm excited as heck to be on the podcast. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, I write for the Desert News. I've been at DN for about a year and a half now. Um, I'm a Utah native, went to Manti High School and BYU. Uh, previous to the Desert News, I went to Sampy Messenger in Sampy County. Um, and again, just excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. That's great. All right. By now we've heard of the COVID Delta variant. Cases are spiking in Utah and across the country. Vaccines work, people. We'll talk about that momentarily. But first, Sam, you recently wrote an article about the Biden administration's door-to-door vaccine program, like missionary work for vaccines. What's the story exactly, and what do we think is the success rate for this method? Sure. Yeah, the focus actually came from the White House. Uh, President Biden last month, I guess it's August now, so two months ago, uh, mentioned in one press briefing that that they might send people door to door to educate about these vaccines. Interestingly, no, though, the the door to door volunteers aren't federal employees or don't come from the CDC or whatnot. It, it's the Biden and the administration are encouraging it at a state level. So we've seen states like Louisiana or Georgia who have actually done this since April um, and have sent people from their local health clinics, uh, local volunteers, local leaders civic leaders, uh, clergy members, religious leaders, that they'll just go door to door in neighborhoods. It's not like they have a list of who's vaccinated, who's not. They're just knocking in random areas or especially areas where there's a high population of unvaccinated people, data from from the health departments. And they just answer questions. Um, It's not like they're walking around with syringes and jabbing people on the doorstep, uh, simply answering things. So yeah, you you mentioned religious missionaries, uh, very similar. Um, I know that's something a lot of people in Utah have experience with. In terms of success rates, it, it's really hard to know. Uh, Louisiana, though, saw a double-digit increase in vaccination rates from April to June after they implemented this program. Causation or, or correlation, we don't know. Uh, and there's really no way to track it. But, you know, you hear from some of the volunteers in, in those states, and Missouri is another state who's implemented it. <laughs> they, they talk as if it's missionary work. They say that, you know, they get a lot of stores slammed on their faces, other people more willing to help. So, yeah, it's hit and miss. Uh, it's an interesting strategy, and we'll see if it has effect in Utah, if at all, or, or elsewhere. So you're saying that they don't actually have, it's not that, like they have a list of doors that they want to knock. They're just kind of randomly knocking in areas that of, of high probability. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Um, the, the White House or, or the administration or the CDC, there's, there's no list of, of who's been vaccinated in the United States and who hasn't people would probably, if they did, they'd get upset about HIPAA or not. We've heard about that in recent weeks. So they're, they're just looking at areas that have lower vaccine rates that are lagging the other parts of their respective states um, and sending outreach groups to those areas. That makes sense. Hey, Todd, I have a feeling you did some door-to-door proselytizing a little bit in your day. I did. I did. And, you know, sending people door-to-door during a pandemic just seems like a really, really bad idea. I mean, uh, spreading, you know, spreading the germs from one neighbor to the next and then to the next. Um, but I also think, I mean, look at the massive undertaking that the census was, and and they did most of that by mail. They did most of that online. Um, our federal government does not have the capacity 
uh, to go door to door to get people signed up. I mean, I do think we we can do more. Um, I, I do think also this Delta variant, it's it's scaring people into getting the vaccine, which is an, uh, which is probably good in a way. Um, and, and so far, there's no evidence that it's more deadly. It's just more uh, transmissible. It's like the chickenpox. It's easier to catch the Delta variant, but there's not really any evidence that it's that it's more deadly than than than, than regular COVID nineteen. In any event, um, <clears throat> so Corey, I mean, what do you think? Um, I mean, Biden came out. President Biden came out in May and said, "Hey, if you get the vaccination, you don't need to wear your mask anymore." The CDC came out less than two weeks ago and said this is largely a pandemic among the unvaccinated. And now, just in the last three or four days, we've seen a complete reversal saying even if you're vaccinated, even if you're with vaccinated people, you need to wear a mask again. What what do you think about the lack of trust in this contradicting information that we're getting from the federal government, Corey? Yeah, absolutely. It's so frustrating. So, I mean, I want to take a step back just real quick for, for folks. I mean, so we, so we might remember from high school biology class that species can evolve and mutate. And that's the reason we have to get the flu shot every single year. You know, the flu virus constantly changing. So what worked last year might not necessarily work this year. And so the same holds true for COVID. And Delta is like signifies kind of the essentially the fourth mutation. And so this one, as you said, transmits uh, easier from person to person. It's not really sh- clear whether it's more causes more serious illness or not. Concern arises because we still have, you know, 35% of adults in America and about 60% of teenagers eligible haven't gotten vaccinated. Numbers are a little bit better in Utah, but pretty much the same. So like you said, last week, CDC announced that they have new data suggesting fully vaccinated people can catch the Delta variant and pass it along to vaccinated and unvaccinated people. That's to be expected because like you say, I mean, the vaccine, it doesn't necessarily protect a person from catching COVID. Instead, prevents vaccinated person from feeling sick, from feeling the symptoms. And it's extremely effective at preventing serious illness. So this CDC about face on masking, it's just so frustrating, and especially the media coverage of the situation, because CDC, like you said, wants Americans to go back to wearing masks indoors, which is basically probably the removing the, the biggest incentive to getting vaccinated. You say, hey, a huge incentive if you get vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. But now we're saying, oh, actually, you do. Never mind. I, uh, I changed my mind. So, and, and and meanwhile, the truth is, like, there's evidence to show that masks are even less effective against the Delta variant than than the original COVID. I don't want to say they don't work, but but they're less effective than even they used to be. So we're disincentivizing vaccination, which is exactly the wrong approach. And we have the media hair on fire about these quote uh, breakthrough disease. That means you know, vaccinated people catch the Delta variant of COVID. So they're, they're vaccinated, but they catch it. But what's lost is only a tiny percentage of vaccinated people are actually infected and even fewer are sick and only a minuscule amount are dying. That's like, I mean, the data show one one thousandth of 1% of vaccinated people have died from COVID. So, I mean, the bottom line, vaccines work. If you've not been vaccinated, uh, well, I mean, the Delta variant, I'll, I think it's I think it's safe to say that what it means for you is that you're you're going to get COVID. And so, these breakthrough cases are very, very rare. I mean, it's yeah. like one hundredth of a percent. But more importantly, the, the best ex, uh, explanation I've heard is that the vaccine, it's not like an, an on and off switch. It doesn't turn it off. It's more like a dimmer. And so it kind of dims, you know, the right the ability of the vaccine to, or of the virus to make you sick. And 
and everything else. And so um, what we're seeing, even with a few break, you know, relatively uh, small number of breakthrough cases, we're seeing that the vaccine is incredibly effective and that it's working as intended. Um, and, you know, since um, May 1st in Utah, uh, over 95% of the people who've died have been unvaccinated. And, and, and this is largely now a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And while I don't support government mandates uh, forcing people against their will to have vaccines, I, I do encourage everyone listening, get a vaccine and, and do it like today. So Yeah, same. I got the vaccine. Todd got the vaccine. Senator Lee, he just recently shared his experience getting the Donald vaccine. Trump got the vaccine. Trump got the vaccine. <laughs> President Nelson got the vaccine. You should get the vaccine. <laughs> and it, it reduces the chances of becoming critically, critically ill or dying to like yeah. basically nothing. So yeah, anyway. Minuscule, minuscule percentage. Yeah. All right, so this week, Utah Senator Mike Lee joined Ted Cruz in filing an amicus brief asking the Supreme Court to overrule Roe v. Wade. This is the Supreme Court decision granting a constitutional right to have an abortion, many of us are familiar with. Uh, the Supreme Court is expected to rule on a case out of Mississippi during the upcoming term. Todd, the composition of the Supreme Court has changed since the last time abortion was on the docket. You think the court will listen to Senator Lee and overturn the right to have an abortion? Well, the court's either going to overturn it or they're not. I don't. I don't think it has anything to do with Mike Lee's amicus brief. But I mean, no offense to Senator Lee, I I think he's right on this issue. But I, I don't think that I don't think there's any one of the nine justices that's waiting for Mike Lee to tell him how to rule on this. But, <laughs> um, I, I I you know I I hate to I, I I'm absolutely pro life. I, I don't expect the Supreme Court is going to overrule. Uh, Roe versus Wade, and they've had several opportunities to do so. I know that we have a different court now with Amy Coney Barrett, etc. But uh, I, I also think that um, people don't necessarily understand that you know Roe, Roe v. Wade. It has um, it's been supplanted. Um, trying to think of it, there's a 1991 case that we, we really rely yeah. on today. Casey, Casey versus yeah, Planned Parenthood, yeah, uh, versus Planned Parenthood. Um, and so we're really talking about overruling Casey at this point, but. No, but most people uh, haven't heard of Casey and I forgot the name, but um, I, I, I think we have enough, uh, you know, traditionalists on the court uh, that, that it probably won't be overruled. And if I'm wrong and if it is overruled, you're going to see a, a bunch of uh, states immediately allow abortion, you know, under state law like New York and, you know, all the blue states, of course, and maybe some of the purple states. And so, you know, I just want people to understand if the Supreme Court does overrule Roe and, and Casey, what, what you're going to see is maybe a woman in Utah would have to travel to California, uh, Colorado or Nevada to get an abortion, but it's not like abortions are going to be halted. Yeah, that's a great point to be made because if it's struck down, what it means is there's no longer a U.S. constitutional right to abortion, but that what that does is pushes it to the states to decide, and st states will decide differently, of course. Some will actually pr probably expand the the right to abortion to abortion on demand in the third trimester while others will restrict it a little bit more this mississippi law would ban most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy and you know viability is generally viewed as 24 weeks but babies really can survive at 17 18 weeks now i mean it's you know it's still a challenge and it's difficult but they they can survive so in the casey decision what the court said was that viability would sort of dictate uh, when what sorts of restrictions could be put in place, and as as 
yes, our scientific technology has advanced, that viability has has scooted back, you know, from from 30 weeks to 24 weeks to, you know, even uh, in the late teen weeks, it's still possible for kids to to survive. So anyway, you could see uh, if, if it is struck down, I tend to think that it probably won't be, but I, I, you, I could definitely see them, you know, with with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett now definitely moving in the direction of restricting it a little bit further. But uh, Sam, not sure if Supreme Court's part of your beat, but uh, and, and I know your colleague wrote up a story, but you think Utah's, how do they come down on this question? You think the majority would agree? Well, the last poll that I saw was from 2018. Utah Policy did one um, that found that, I mean, 44% of the state's voters supported Roe v. Wade, 37% against it, and then a handful that that weren't sure. And that surprised me. Um, obviously, Utah's a red state. Uh, but yeah, 44%. So not the majority, but a plurality of, of of the people polled. But yeah, just like Todd said, the question at hand is not whether abortion should be legal or not when it comes to Roe v. Wade. Is it in the hand of the federal government or is it at the state level? And so should it be overturned by the Supreme Court? That doesn't make, it's not blanket illegality for abortion. It just puts it back in the hands of the state and they can make their own decisions. You're going to see many states that probably become more extreme on the issue of abortion. I mean, either direction. And so that, that's the real question that, that the Supreme Court would have to deal with if it, if it does overturn uh, mm-hmm. Roe v. Wade. Those are interesting numbers from, from Utah. But I guess we, we should also account for the fact that Mormons in general view it just slightly differently than, say, evangelicals. Um, you might have like Catholics or evangelicals who are more in the camp of no abortion under any circumstances, where I think generally the church has been in the place of if in, in cases of rape, incest and health of the mother, it's not necessarily okay, but it's uh, but they don't oppose it. So maybe, maybe that's part of the, the polling there. All right, let's talk a little political buzz. Sam, you recently published another article. You've been prolific. This one uh, profiles the Senate primary challengers to Mike Lee. What's your assessment of the race now and projecting forward? The interesting thing to me is that, I mean, we're still 11 months, more or less, from the primary next June. Um, and Mike Lee already has two challengers within the GOP. Uh, you have Ali Isom um, and Becky Edwards. Both are very capable. Both are very impressive. You know, as a Senator Lee, he has two terms under his belt. The most interesting thing to me, though, is, is how both of uh, these two challengers are running their campaigns. Um, both Ali Isom and Becky Edwards have focused on on listening. They've, they've put together these statewide campaigns. For Ali, it's, she's walking a mile in every Utah community. For Becky, she's packing up her Volkswagen with a yellow couch and taking it to every Utah city and sitting down with people and talking. And so their whole goal is to get in inside the minds of Utah voters and hear what they're thinking. But yeah, you bring up a good point. I mean, we're, we're still almost a year out, um, and there's been a lot of media coverage on my part and others. And it's because the, the challengers are active as a Senator Lee um, with fundraising or excuse me, his campaign and whatnot. Another interesting thing, though, and um, I'm sure you, you're, you'd be interested in this, Corey, because you worked for Senator Bob Bennett, um, who Senator Lee defeated in 2010. The last time a, a Utah senator and an, an incumbent was defeated in the primary was Bob Bennett in 2010. And I think a big part of that, well, I don't think I, I know, is that Senator Lee had the help of the Tea Party movement, right? In 2009, 2010, um, this major national movement that he formed part of. And so it's not like he was just this unknown lawyer from Provo that, that got lucky, but he was riding this wave um, within the conservative movement. As of right now, Ali Eisman and Becky Edwards don't have that. 
Ali identifies or, or is, you know, conservative, very similar to Senator Lee. Um, Becky Edwards is a bit more moderate, but neither of them have, have the, you know, this ideal situation in which they're riding a national movement or a national wave that would garner them attention and fundraising from out of state, which Mike Lee had in 2010. So that's the thing I'll be watching over the next, you know, 10 or 11 months is does any of that drum up attention or, or uh, some support from out of state or not? Yeah. And let me just jump in, Samuel, you probably know this, but um, Mike Lee did not defeat Bob Bennett. Um, Tim Bridgewater defeated Bob Bennett and then Mike Lee defeated Tim Bridgewater in the um, in the primary. Be- before that, um, Mark Shirtliff, who was the sitting AG, had announced against um, against uh, uh, Bennett as well. And so that would be the equivalent right now of Sean Reyes announcing against Mike Lee. And I think when you have a sitting attorney general, a statewide office holder announce against a sitting U.S. senator, it sends a signal to the delegates and to the electorate that 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 this Senate, the Senate seat is 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 well, the, the incumbent is perceived as weak and that the Senate seat uh, is up for grabs. I, I don't think that Ali Isom or Becky Edwards, as much as I respect each of them, um, has the same gravitas as, you know, a sitting statewide elected office holder. Um, but and the other interesting thing about that race when Mike Lee won is he didn't even announce his candidacy until February, you know, before the April or May convention. So, I mean, he just ran like a two to three month campaign and then was able to sneak through the convention as a distant number two. Uh, Tim Bridgewater got 57 percent on the final ballot. Had he gotten 60 percent, there would have been no primary for Mike Lee to win. Uh, but you are right that, you know, um, Mike, Mike Lee had a lot of help um, from Club for Growth and even from a sitting U.S. senator, you know, that, that was, you know, raising money for him and even played a video at the convention. So this will be interesting to watch. But Sam, don't you think that uh, Ali and Becky are kind of canceling each other out, that they're kind of, you know, going for the same voter right now? Yeah, Todd, that's a great point. Um, I, I was speaking with a staffer from the ISOM campaign last week. And I don't know if she can speak for the whole campaign or just her personal opinion, but she mentioned that you know, the strategy is that Edwards would, would drop out at some point. And I'm sure both campaigns think that. You know, if they're both in the primary, they'll be splitting the vote, the opposition vote more or less against Senator Lee. So I'm sure people on both sides, on both the ISOM campaign and the Edwards campaign, think that their route is that the other challengers drop out and just between them and Senator Lee. Whether or not that'll happen, we don't know. Um, it's it's worth noting that Senator Lee has you know forty five percent and a forty five percent approval rating among Utah voters, according to our last Desert News poll. So he enjoys pretty significant approval among the voters in the state, especially within his party. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting, Todd, and and we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting. Prisoner's dilemma. All right. Well, Corey, last topic. Um, last week, Congressman Blake Moore was fined two hundred dollars by the House Ethics Committee for failing to file a report, uh, well, failing to report a series of stock transactions. Um, how serious is this offense? Uh, just a little backstory. The Stock Act prohibits insider trading by members of Congress and other government employees. Back in 2011, there was a 60 Minutes uh, investigative report that suggested that several members of Congress had traded stocks after learning secret details about the 2008 financial crisis ahead of other people. That was sort of that secret meeting with, uh, with the Secretary of of treasury and rather than sort of amend the the laws insider trading laws to capture some of this or just outright prohibiting stock trades for members of congress instead congress came up with this cumbersome instrument to monitor trades and so 
Members of Congress are required to report every stock trade they make. It applies to staff too. And uh, just a, a moment of, of personal privilege here. I, I had to list my Piddly mutual fund transactions along with how much was in my bank account, which, you know, basically giving every Russian hacker what they needed to rob me blind. Not that there was much to rob, but I mean, it's, it's actually obnoxious too, because most people like we did, you know, you automatically invest, reinvest your dividends. And so even that is reportable under the stock act. So, you know, if, yeah, if you reinvest $8 from, from paid dividends, well, you have to report that too. So, but anyway, my understanding is that, uh, Congressman Moore had a financial advisor making arm's length decisions about his portfolio for him. So he didn't actually know what stocks were being traded and so forth, but ultimately it's still his responsibility. So he still has to answer for it um, under the law. So, and he didn't stay on top of it. Well, I mean, I know he's new and everything and, and I, and and I've heard of explanation, his explanation, but the, the, you know, what, what really looks bad here is he's a member of the house armed services committee. And, and this was a a trade of a defense contractor who, you know, has, you know, is, is, is is bidding for business before the federal government. So I I don't know, it's not a great look for your first year in Congress. Yeah, I agree. The, 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 the optics are bad. I mean, I, I would say that, you know, a freshman house member in the minority <laughs> doesn't have much market moving power, you know, um, but that said, it's uh, the, the optics are bad. Totally agree with oh, that. And, I, and let me just be clear. I, I don't think that he was intentionally trying to do anything wrong, but in terms of the undermining the public's confidence in, in our elected officials, you know, when, when, when we're in a, already in a toxic political environment, this, you know, I, I've seen people on Twitter saying that, he should go to jail for this. And he's not going to go to jail for it. I've also seen a lot of complaints that a $200 fine is just pathetically low. And that's that that should probably be looked at. Yeah, maybe so. All right, that's all the time we have. Thanks to our guest, Sam Benson. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'll be back next week.